Colossians chapter 3, I'll read verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Go ahead and stop there and we'll flip you over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, and I'll read from verse 22. 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Now, you know we've been working our way through the book of Colossians, and we've laid the foundation for understanding all that God has done for us in Christ, and then the effect that salvation should have upon us. I know you remember we've said before that we were told early on in Colossians that we're alienated from God, we are hostile toward God, we've done evil deeds against God, and he reconciled us to himself by making peace with us through the blood of the cross of the Lord Jesus. And then through that process, we've been brought from darkness to light, we've been brought from death to life, and we're being renewed day by day, conforming more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now as believers, we're putting off anger and malice and slander, and we're putting on the new self. We're putting on Christ and wearing kindness and compassion and bearing and forgiving and loving like Christ. Our new identity is that we're in Christ and we're dwelling in harmony as believers. God's word is dwelling in us and we're teaching and admonishing one another. And as a congregation, we're giving praise to God with our voices. And I agree with Rick this morning. The singing was better and louder. Praise God for that. And we're expressing our continued thankfulness because of God's grace and because of his mercy. And Paul's desire is that salvation and reconciliation would create harmony and unity among the believers in Colossae and also among the believers here at Grace Fellowship Church. And after all of that, Paul is now beginning to address how we're to live and how all of salvation should affect our marriages. And the truth is, our salvation should have a tremendous impact 
on every sphere of our lives. Our salvation in Christ should produce couples who are living out the one flesh relationship that God originally designed. Salvation should give us the grace to be the husbands that God's called us to be and should help our wives be the wives called God them to be. And we didn't read the next section of Colossians chapter 3, and you don't need to turn there, but once he talks about how we live in our marriages, he goes on to talk about how to raise our children, how to live in the workplace, and then he talks about how we're to live among unsaved people and our neighbors around us. It's a full orb view of how we live the Christian life based on all that God has done for us in Christ. Now we read from Ephesians 5 along with Colossians 3 because the Ephesians 5 passage expands on what Paul says in Colossians and we're going to eventually work our way through both. But let me just tell you where we're going over the next few weeks. Today we won't spend really any time at all in Colossians or Ephesians. Today what I want to do is go back to the book of Genesis and we want to look at the institution of marriage before the fall. Um, and then we'll look at what the fall has done to the marriage relationship. What I mean by the fall is when Adam and, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and when sin was, 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 and the consequences of sin was placed upon them, that's what I mean by the fall, their disobedience in the Garden. For us to understand the New Testament commands that we have in marriage, we need to go back to the beginning and understand the foundation of marriage and subsequently the effects that sin has had on marriage as well. So today will be specifically in the book of Genesis. My encouragement to, to you as I say this whenever we're doing a mini-series, we'll be doing looking at marriage for the next four weeks. So if you miss anything, please listen to it online. Uh, this is going to be a three-hour sermon in four parts. All will be connected to each other, and so we don't want you to miss anything. And our prayer is that if you have any questions that may come up today, that they'll be answered by the time we're through with this. And hopefully this will create conversation. I, I hope that in your homes and with your children and among each other, that, that we'll talk more and more about how this biblical view of marriage is so critical to how we live our lives. So I hope this creates questions, it creates discussion, and helps all of us to grow with one another in Christ. Largely because as soon as anybody quotes from Ephesians 5 and makes the statement, a husband is head of the wife, then the subsequent statement, wives, submit to your husbands. I can already see the emotions rise in the building as the smoke comes off some of our shoulders in our, in our brains. Headship and submission has been attacked. Headship and submission has been mistaught. It's been misapplied. It's been misrepresented and misunderstood. And I hope that over these next few weeks, we'll bring some clarity from God's word on the entire subject. So today, we're going to go back to the beginning, have a brief overview of Genesis 1 and 2, and I just want us to notice three things by the time we're done. Number one, the purpose of marriage. Uh, number two, the partnership in marriage. And then number three, the order in marriage. So we'll start in Genesis 2. Then we'll go to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is the six days of creation. And Genesis 2, parts of it, has kind of an expanded view of God's creation of Eve and the institution of marriage. But we'll start in Genesis 2, and I'm going to read in verse 18. And our goal here is to attempt to discover God's original purpose in marriage. Genesis 2, verse 18. 
Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he slept, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, obviously, we can spend several Sundays just in this passage, which we won't be able to do. There's multitudes of books and commentaries that have gone over all this and, and been far more detailed than I can be. For our purposes, I just want you to see three things from this portion of scripture. And the most obvious, I think, you can't miss, is there's not one suitable helper, not one helper fit for man in the animal kingdom. So contrary to popular opinion, dog is not man's best friend, and both the Lone Ranger and you cowboys, uh, neither is your horse. So we need to say that right out of the box. The phrase, a helper fit for him, means a help as opposite him or corresponding to him. The, the word helper, the word helper is, is not designed to be a demeaning term. It is not a term that denotes what we would call a personal assistant. Now, some actually argue that the word helper here is not the best of terms because in our culture, the word helper denotes a superior, inferior mentality. And some actually read this and say that Adam was given a role in creation who was over Eve, and Eve was simply there as uh, his secretary, his receptionist, his maid, his assistant, there to do Adam's bidding. Since she's Adam's helper, who is the head, then Adam is the one who can order her around. Now, I like a hand, showing of hands, how many people agree with that view? I'm just kidding. Now, when I was in high school, I worked for my friend's dad, who was a, a guy who laid tile. And I was his helper. I was his grunt. He ordered me around. I had no involvement in the planning. I had no involvement in the structure. He, he told me to mix mud. He told me to bring mud. He told me exactly what to do. And I helped him do anything that he asked. I was at his beck and call. I was his helper. That is not what helper fit for him means. The word helper fit for him, or some translations, suitable helper, it means complements. It means completes. Throughout its use in the Old Testament, it never communicates a greater than, less than. It never communicates a superior, inferior status. In fact, the word is used for God being our helper. 
In, in Psalm 30, verse 33, verse 20, the psalmist states that God is our help and our shield. Uh, we don't boss God around. God is not inferior to us. We are not superior to him. Uh, one commentator defines the word helper as an indispensable companion. Now the most obvious help that Eve brought to Adam was the companionship that he was missing. Notice the passage says, as our second point, that marriage was created or instituted because according to God, in verse 18, Adam was alone and that was not good. There's your purpose. God gave him a wife because Adam was alone and that was not good. So Eve was created from Adam to help or provide for the lack that God stated was true about him. The help fit for him was companionship. The help fit for him was friendship and all the joy and all the gladness and all the satisfaction and all the completeness that comes with it. Now, now remember, in a technical sense, Adam was not alone because he had God. He had perfect fellowship with God but he was physically alone and God gave him a physical flesh and blood partner who was like him, yet unlike him, to meet his needs for companionship. A man's best friend, if he's married, should always be his wife. So he portrayed a companion, so, so God provided a companion to help him in his aloneness a helper corresponding to him, not inferior to him, but equal to him, also made in the image of God. In verse 20 of Genesis 2, after naming all the animals and all the creatures in the animal kingdom, there was not found a, a helper there. In verse 21 states, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. You know, we can't miss the imagery here of Eve's creation coming from Adam's rib. In Matthew Henry's commentary, written over 400 years ago, just, just gets this so, is so vivid and so helpful. In fact, I put it in your bulletin. That the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. What an encouragement that, that, that to know that God is concerned about the details of his creation, that God knows his creation. God desires his creation to have intimate human contact and intimate friendship, intimate partnership, and intimate fellowship. God is loving and he's kind and he's aware of all of our needs. So he creates a perfect companion for Adam to share life with to remove his aloneness, and two, as the text goes on, to become one flesh with, which is the third thing I want you to see from this text. 
without exception, the one flesh marriage relationship between two people of opposite genders is the closest relationship that any person will ever have. Even closer than your parents, which is indicated in the command to leave your father and your mother and hold fast to your wife. Now I have to say, opposite genders, in order to simply state the obvious, that two becoming one can only happen between a man and a woman. Not a man and a man, not a woman and a woman. Marriage was, has always been, and according to God's word and creation order in marriage, will always be only between male and female. And let me say that there will come a time, maybe soon, when what I just said will get me arrested, will get me fined, and will get us shut down. We're all seeing the handwriting on the wall, aren't we? It shouldn't surprise you. Beloved, this world is not our home. We are just a passing through. And as the United States continues its downward spiral into the abyss of gender neutrality or gender obscurity and continues to reject God and reject His Word, our responsibility is to simply continue to live out our Christian lives. Be ambassadors. Proclaim the good news of salvation and declare His clear commands that never changes it's going to become more difficult we will suffer persecution for naming the name of christ and declaring a biblical worldview in regards to gender and marriage but i pray i pray our persecution comes because of our words not belligerent attitudes the darker it gets around us the brighter the light of christ will shine and even in a culture that's attempting to silence God and silence his word, the gospel will still go forward in power. So we live for Christ, and we preach Christ, and God opens blind eyes, even as the moral tide begins to continue to turn. Now, becoming one flesh is far more than a physical union. And you see that in the entire command in verse 24. Leave his father and his mother Hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The word leave means to abandon. It means to depart from. Hold fast, or cleave, means to, to stick like glue. It, me, it means to join oneself closely to. And becoming one flesh is exactly what it means. You're no longer two, Jesus said, but now you're one. You're one in heart and mind and soul. It's far more than sexual. It's, it's, it's written in a way that becoming one flesh is actually a process that goes on over the, time, the entire time of your marriage. It is not a one-time event. In our, in, our, in our hookup culture, there are people constantly having sex outside the covenant of marriage, but they're not becoming one flesh. Becoming one flesh is entering into life from your spouse's perspective embracing his or her ideas and thoughts and concepts and struggles and solutions. For us as men, it's learning to know and learning to discover the, the genuine heart of our wives, how she thinks, studying her, what motivates her, what makes her tick. And for a woman, it's similar. Learn what motivates your husband and 
why he sees things the way he does, why does he make the decisions that he makes in understanding him. We become one flesh as we enter into each other's lives and begin to see and understand from the other person's point of view. It doesn't mean you're not going to have your own interests or your own hobbies or desires, but it does mean, it does mean that you and your spouse will live totally transparent lives. One flesh is lies without secrets because you're not two anymore. You're now one. No hiding, full disclosure, full disclosure of who you are. That's clearly what's implied when it says they were naked and not ashamed. To live with your wife or your husband at the level that they know you and are known by you and you know them and you're known by them, laid bare before one another. This is what marriage is for. It's loving one another and treating one another with love and respect and care, fully trusting one another since you're one flesh with your spouse you're really you're really treating him or her the way you want to be treated because he's yours and you're his so your spouse is just an extension of you and you're an extension of him or her and your joys are their joys and your tears are their tears and you share the same burdens and blessings and the same sorrows Becoming one flesh means that you're as comfortable with your spouse as you are with yourself. Because you're one. And God created it to bring joy and completeness and the companionship that God designed marriage for. Just an amazing privilege. It's just, just a privilege to know someone and to be known by them. You just, you just marvel that, that she knows me and she still loves me and she's allowed me to know her. It's one flesh. And as you get back to Genesis 2, did you notice Adam's response when he saw Eve. You've got to really think this through. Adam has just seen every animal, every livestock, every beast, which means every jungle animal, forest animal, and he named all of them. And out of all the animal kingdom, there was not one that was a suitable helper fit for him. So God puts him in a deep sleep, pulls out one of his ribs, heals him up, forms Eve and brings him to Adam and says, here you go, Adam. Take a look at this one. What do you think of her? (laughs) And what does he say? This, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she's taken out a man. One Old Testament commentator says that these words are expressive of of joyous astonishment. He marvels. It's at last. It really means finally. He's seen it all. Now he sees her. He says, wow. In today's language, my my sons would all say, now that's what I'm talking about. Calvin writes, in using the expression, Adam indicates 
that something had been wanting to him as if he had said, now at length I've obtained a suitable companion who's part of the substance of my flesh in whom I behold, as it were, another self. I'm looking at another self, one who's come from me, different than me, but kind of like me. You see, before we come to the commands for men and women in marriage, let me remind you that the marriage is designed to meet your need for companionship and friendship, and your wife and your husband is a gift that should create still to this day that joyous astonishment in your soul. I think oftentimes, sometimes even in the church, the cultural view of marriage is that, is that marriage, you know, marriage is slavery. That's why people have bachelor parties. It's, it's their last night of being free, right? Living that single life. The cultural view, and I say sometimes I think in the church as well, means oh, that you just can no longer do what you want. No longer be what you want and go where you want. And all of a sudden, you have someone else calling the shots in your life. There's no more fun and no more joy and no more life. Marriage is drudgery. You may have even heard, some people even attribute it to like being in prison with a ball and chain. Paul Overstreet countered this idea of marriage and he wrote a song and hear the lyrics. I love this song. He said, I won't try and sing it to you, I'll just read it. Back when we made our plans to tie the knot, my friends, they all laughed at me a lot. They slapped my back and told me how they thought I was insane. They said, son, you're too young to wear that ball and chain. But love don't feel like a ball and chain to me. When I'm close to you, my heart feels wild and free. If you're my jailer, darling, throw away the key. Because love don't feel like a ball and chain to me. Well, I still see my single friends from time to time, and they ask me how it feels to walk the line. Well, I tell them it feels better than I ever dreamed it would, and I would never trade places with them even if I could. If it's a crime for a man to love his wife, then throw the old book at me and give me 99 to life. I'll spend every minute, every hour, every day holding you close. I don't want you to get away. Love don't feel like a ball and chain to me. Ecclesiastes 9.9, Solomon declares, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil which you toil under the sun. Beloved, what a gracious and kind and wonderful Heavenly Father to provide marriage to be enjoyed while we live and work and toil in this sin-cursed world all the days of our vain life. He saw Adam's aloneness and provided a perfect friend, a perfect companion, a perfect confidant to rule his creation with. Now, I purposely have not said a word about how hard this is to accomplish now that we live in a sin-cursed world. We're saving that for next week. That's bait to come back. I'm sure there are some listening to this and you're thinking and saying in your mind, Rick, I know you're talking about marriage, <laughs> but mine doesn't look anything like you're describing. We'll discover next week that sin 
affects everything. But I should at least remind you that the commands to leave father and mother and cleave to your wife and become one flesh, they were commanded in Genesis 2 before the fall. But Jesus reiterates them in Matthew 19, and Paul states them again in Ephesians 5. The institution and the commands and purposes for marriage have not changed. Sin's made it a little more difficult. Sin's made it a little more complex. But we've provided a Savior to help us with that, haven't we? Before the fall, before Adam and Eve sinned, they lived in perfect harmony, perfect bliss, perfect unity, never a selfish desire, never a cross word, never ignored each other, never lied. They were never angry, never immoral, never hateful, never empathetic. But sin changes everything considerably. And again, we'll see that next week. So God's purpose in marriage, companionship, dealing with Adam's loneliness. Now look at the partnership in marriage. I want you to turn with me to Genesis 1. Genesis 1. I'll read from verse 26. (coughs) Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, did you notice that he's talking to Adam and Eve as a couple? Look at the command in verse 26. Let them have dominion. Then in verse 27, Male and female, he created them. Then the command in verse 28 is clearly to them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over every living thing. Now why am I bringing this up? I think it's important that once you understand and you see that the word helper is not a position of less than or inferior to, rather it's simply to provide a perfect companion for Adam who was alone, Once you understand that, then you see the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing. When you see that was given to both of them, that should help you see even more clearly the equality between Adam and Eve. Before the fall, the commands to care for God's creation were given to Adam and Eve as a couple to Adam and Eve as a husband and wife together. He created them. He blessed them. He said to them. Sometimes when people talk about marriage, they wrongly assume that since the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, then all the information comes down through the husband and then filters to the wife so the husband controls everything. 
And the wife has no mind and no thoughts and no input. And we call that headship and submission. It's just not true. Adam and Eve in the garden were standing side by side while God commanded them to have dominion. They were standing side by side when God commanded them to be fruitful. They're standing side by side while God commanded them to fill the earth. They're standing side by side while God commanded them to subdue the earth and have dominion over every living thing. When you see the commands were as much to Eve as they were to Adam, then you have to conclude that she wasn't a silent partner, just sitting back and waiting for Adam to tell her what to do. She's her own person creating an image of God who surely had a whole host of thoughts, a whole host of opinions on where flowers should go or how the animals should be cared for or how things should operate and even when, when or how many children they should have because they're in this together. Two individuals create an image of God who are given these commands to populate God's creation, to rule over God's creation, and to have dominion and get their sustenance from God's creation. Men who, who marginalize their wives' thoughts and their wives' opinions, they dismiss the blessing of the one flesh relationship. When husbands do not give their wives full freedom to speak and share and decide and have, have input, They've really handcuffed themselves by not using all that God has given them in their one flesh partner. There are things that Deb sees that are completely different than what I see. And there's things that she does that she's just better at than I am. Now, believe me, I've been married 40 years now. 40 or 41, I, I didn't do the math very quick. In between 40 and 41. It's taken me a long time to understand that. A longer time to admit it. And a longer time to embrace it. In my early married years, I didn't understand some of these things. But marriage is a partnership. I hope you learn it way before I did. I'm continuing to learn it. My wife knows what perfect level is by eye. We've been hanging pictures in our house in probably five or six, seven, eight, every house we lived in, we hang pictures. I get the level, and I get the tape measure. We, we have battled over hanging pictures in our house. Every time I've ever remeasured, what she told me to put up there by eye is always right. Now, did I say always? I mean always right. Not because she said it, because my level said it, and my tape measure said it. We just, I, I'm saying this because we just hung some things on Friday. <laughs> and, and she said, I'm still right, aren't I? <laughs> I'm the head of my home. I'm the king of my castle. You're going to do things my way, or we're not going to do them at all. Rick, you're an idiot. <laughs> because you've got someone who knows more than you do. Use the gifts that God's given you in her. Marriage is a partnership. But thirdly, in light of all that, I want you to see that though a partnership, there's still order in our relationship. 
And the order in relationship wasn't just established in the New Testament when, when Paul said that husbands are, are to be head of the home as Christ is head of the church. It's not just a New Testament command. It's in the Old Testament as well. It's in the book of Genesis. It's not specifically stated in one verse that Adam is held responsible for what takes place in the garden. We're not told just in one verse that there's a creation order. We're not told until Ephesians 5 that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. But order in the home is established in the garden. Because though Adam and Eve are side by side, and though at this time they're sinless, again, there's still order. And you see this in several parts of the Genesis account. I just want to list the reasons for now in Genesis for male headship in marriage. We're going to go into detail about this when we get to Ephesians 5. But I want you to lay the, I want to lay the foundation out here in Genesis so you'll at least see it and we'll be more thorough with it in the, in the weeks to come. Husbands are held accountable to lead their homes and families and their wives, though equal, Wives are to follow their leadership, and how do we know this? Well, first and foremost, Adam was formed first. Paul is the one who mentions this in 1 Timothy 2. Much like a firstborn child throughout the Old Testament is viewed at the head of the family, Adam being formed first places him as a leader in his relationship with Eve. Secondly, Adam, naming of the animals all by himself, is something else that points to and places him as the head in this relationship. Thirdly, Adam names Eve. Many cultures, in many cultures, the one who names the others are considered the ones who are the heads and who are the ones who hold responsibility. And then fourth, we'll find out next week, after Adam and Eve sinned, the first person that God looked for was Adam. Adam was the one held responsible. And we know, number five, that not only was he held responsible, he was the federal head of the human race, the representative of the human race, and according to Romans 5, it's Adam's sin that was passed down to all humanity. One author describes it this way. Since man was created first, he was given headship over the woman and creation. The fact that Adam named Eve, a privilege bestowed on those who had authority in the Old Testament, manifested his authority over here. But listen to this. But their original relationship was so pure and perfect that his headship over her was a manifestation of his consuming love for her. And her submission to him was a manifestation of her, her consuming love for him. No selfishness or self-will marred their relationship. Each lived for the other in perfect fulfillment of their created purpose and under God's perfect provision and care. It's impossible for us to imagine what this looks like and what it feels like. As I said before, no selfishness, no self-will, no sinful demands, no manipulation, no overbearing authority. No pouting when someone doesn't get their way. Raise your hand if you're a powder. Never mind, keep them down. We'd all raise our hands. All the guys would, wouldn't we? No silent treatment. Perfect leadership. Perfect in unity. Perfect love. And then perfectly following 
and perfectly submitting, and in the process, perfect, absolute joy. Beloved, don't let the words headship and submission get you all worked up. All of us have a submissive role to someone or something and the one in the submissive role is not any less than the one who's in leadership role. You cannot have an ordered society without it. In Ephesians 5.21, we're all commanded to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, we're told to submit to the governing authorities. 1, Timothy, or 1 Corinthians 16, we're to submit to workers and laborers for Christ. Paul tells Titus to command the younger in the congregation to submit to the older in the congregation. Hebrews 13, those in the congregation are commanded to submit to the leaders that God has placed over you. Uh, The point is, every one of us are created in the image of God. We're equal in value, in worth, in dignity. We're not any less than any of those that we're commanded to submit to. It's for order that we're submissive to someone or something. At the end of the day, whenever there are two people doing anything, one will lead, one will follow, and the leader is ultimately responsible for the final decision or outcome. We'll get into more details on that in in the weeks ahead. So we have the purpose, one flesh relationship, companionship. We have the partnership, working together, and we have the order, male headship. And when we turn the page into Genesis 3, all of this is going to explode right in our face because it's sin that destroys our one flesh companionship. And it's sin that destroys our partnership. And it's sin that destroys the God-ordained order. But thanks be to God that because when we look carefully at Genesis 3, he's not going to leave us in our sin, but he promised us a Savior who'd come and restore what was lost in the garden. The Lord Jesus' willing submissiveness to the Father and his sacrificial life and death demonstrate both. They demonstrate biblical submission, but they also demonstrate what loving leadership looks like. And when we come to him in faith, he not only restores the relationship that we lost with the Father because of our sin, He restores our relationships with one another, including our spouses. And it's in and through Christ that our purpose in marriage is restored. And it's in and through Christ that our partnership is restored. And it's in and through Christ that order is restored. We cannot do this on our own. We need His help. We need His enabling. We need His power. We need His grace. And thankfully, in our salvation... In our marriages, he is our helper. And he, we know, will in fact hold us fast, which is a song we're going to close with. So let's pray.